turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We are continuing in a whole expository sermon series on the book of Romans, which I think we started last July or in August, taking up a slight pause um, for the spiritual growth campaign and resurrection, um, the resurrection sermon series. But we're back into Romans now. We'll be going through Romans 8 for the past few weeks. And last week, we talked about which power brings us into cooperation with God's life and order. Which power does that? It's not, it is decidedly not the flesh. That is to say, it's not your natural tendencies. It's not your natural inclinations and desires and passions. It's not that. Those things do not bring you in to God's life. They don't bring you into cooperation with God's life. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 6, that the mind set on the flesh is death. So if you put your mind on the flesh and make it conform to the passions, it is death. But if you put your mind on the spirit and make yourself conform to the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ, then you will have life and peace. So which power brings you into cooperation with God's life? Not the flesh, but the spirit. And therefore, you are a debtor. But to which power? Let's read Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. <clears throat> so, the Holy Spirit in us, as we've mentioned before in this church, the Holy Spirit in us is, is about the life of God in the soul of man. That's what Christianity is about. And in this passage, Paul is exhorting Christians to live according to the life that he has given them. It is a life of peace, of relationship with God as a child and an heir, and it is a life everlasting. And the Apostle Paul is exhorting you, Christian, and me, and the Roman Christians, to live according to the life that has been placed in you and is now in you through the Holy Spirit. And this is in opposition to the death that you naturally have 
is a part of your fallen makeup. Now, so there's a, there's a life and death presentation in this passage. And this sounds so familiar to Deuteronomy 30.11. So I want to turn there. This sounds very familiar to how God warned Israel um, through Moses. Deuteronomy 30. I want to start at um, verse 11. Here's what God says to Israel. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you, and I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That is precisely what the Apostle Paul is telling Christians. God has given you life in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And he is exhorting Christians in the strongest terms possible to choose life, to live according to the life that has been given to them in Christ. So this passage is an urgent encouragement for Christians to live in agreement with God's work in us. So I'm going to walk through the logic of this passage with you. And the, the picture, the overarching picture here is that you're a son. You are an adopted son or daughter in Christ. So live that way. Live according to the adopted life that God has given to you through Christ. Let's look at verse 12 of Romans 8 to begin that. So, in Romans 8.12, the Apostle Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors. Now, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So Paul is exhorting us Christians to live in, to not live in cooperation with our flesh. Even though we have the Holy Spirit, we still exist in a fallen human state, so there's an already-slash-not-yet stage that we're in. We're already in Christ. We already have the Holy Spirit. We already have the life of God flowing through us. We're already connected to the vine, but we're, we're not yet in glory. We are in the already-not-yet stage of redemption, which requires your obedience. So, Paul says, you're not indebted. You're not indebted to the flesh anymore. With, the, with that in mind, that you're in this already not yet stage of, of redemption, you're not indebted to live according to the flesh in this stage. Now, don't forget, the flesh will tempt you. I mean, you're churchgoers. And maybe the flesh is tempting you. Well, you know, you've been good. Why not flesh out a little bit? 
You're not a debtor according to the flesh. You're not a debtor to the flesh. The flesh does nothing for you. You don't need to render service to the flesh anymore. The flesh does not bring you into cooperation with God's will, nor does it bring you into God's life. It is death. Those who set their mind on the things of the flesh, it is death to them. So do not present yourselves, the Apostle Paul is saying, to a master who wants to kill you. Don't, don't present yourself obedient to that master who wants to kill you. God has set before you life in place of death. Choose life. In verse 13, then, the Apostle Paul goes on and says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is a real threat to real Christians. And one commentator put it like this, and I agree with him. He says, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, says, We must not eviscerate this warning. Paul clearly affirms that his readers will be damned if they continue to follow the dictates of the flesh. The believer's once-for-all death to the law of sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. So, you have the Holy Spirit, but that makes it possible for you to mortify the flesh, to kill sin, to resist the flesh. And it makes it necessary for you to do so as a child of God. So this is a warning, Christian. Do not be deceived. We were just in, in Bible study in, um, on Wednesdays. We're going through 1 Corinthians. And we just read a passage that talked about not being deceived into thinking that Christian liberty somehow frees you from being obedient to God. No, it frees you to be obedient to God. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians writes, Do not be deceived, brothers, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So this is a call. Don't be deceived. Your Christian liberty does not free you up to live according to the flesh. It frees you to live according to the Spirit in opposition to the flesh. So I want you to walk away from this sermon today being angry at the flesh and hating sin. Don't play nice with sin and do not feel like you've earned giving in to the flesh. That's not you. You are not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you do so, you will die. So I want, I want us at Church of the Vine to take sin very seriously. Now, there are some Christians who have a far too cordial relationship with sin and the flesh in their life. Far too cordial. And uh, there's a really nice article by a man named Derek Rishmawi. 
It's a fun name to say. But Derek Rishmaui talked about five wrong ways to talk about sin. That's what his article is about. And there are two which I think are especially interesting. So he talks about the youth group way of talking about sin. And I think many Christians talk about sin as if they're in youth group. He says, when the discussion moves along, people begin to talk about areas of struggle. One person shares, then another identifies with the same struggle. And pretty soon, you have people chuckling over shared foibles and faults. At that point, you get a discussion of sin that treats it more like chewing your nails than a serious, soul-destroying plague with real-world repercussions. Do not talk about sin as if it's just a struggle, a foible, a fault, and laugh it off. Sin is very serious. It is, it is because of it that the wrath of God is coming. And it's certainly not for God's children to play nice with those things. It is because of sin that Christ went and died, that the Son came down and suffered. It is because of sin that all manner of evil is in the world today. So do not play nice with sin in your life, because it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. So even if it's the smallest inclination against God's will, your job and your joy is to kill it without pity through the power of the Holy Spirit. It has also, I have noticed, just speaking honestly with you here, we're friends, right? So just speaking honest, it's fashionable today in some evangelical circles to talk about sin um, as if it were just a sign of my brokenness. And it's, it's an indication that we all need forgiveness in Christ. Now that is obviously a true statement. But I feel like the, that kind of rhetoric does not do justice to the seriousness of sin in the life of a Christian. It's not just an indication of your brokenness. It's an indication that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. So in that same article, the author calls this the badge of authenticity approach to talking about sin. He writes, we know we're supposed to take sin seriously and not paper over it, but when that spiritual stream hits the cross-currents of our generation's cult of authenticity and therapeutic self-narration, our discussion takes a different character. We sit around and we confess our sins, sometimes very publicly, but all too often as a way of cutting off criticisms or calls to repentance. We've owned our messiness, so how could anyone demand more of us without falling into pharisaical judgmentalism. I think that's very penetrating analysis. It's not enough to just talk about sin being an indication that we're all messy and we all need forgiveness. That's obviously true. That's Christianity 101, right? It isn't. It? That's why you need to put your faith in Christ. But now, having done so, and having been given the Holy Spirit, your job is to put sin to death through the Holy Spirit, not live 
with some in a cordial relationship with it, as if it did not want to drag you down into the depths of hell. Paul says in Colossians 3, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is, become, is coming because of those things. And if you live on the basis of those things and attach your life to those things, you will die. Now, I, who should this concern? Should this concern the Christian who falls every once in a while? Who, who, who really struggles and wars against sin, sometimes losing, but seeing victory in his life, sometimes failing, but then getting back up and then marching forward in trust and faithfulness. I do not think that that is the person who needs to be concerned. And if you feel slightly uncomfortable with what I'm saying, that may be an indication already that the Holy Spirit is working in you and is in you, leading you to repentance which is itself an indication that you are a child of God. But this should concern those who treat the Christian life lackadaisically. It should concern the person who does not do battle against sin, who does not struggle against sin, who treats Christ lackadaisically and the Holy Spirit as if he were not working in them. That's the person. That's the person who should be nervous about what I'm saying. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. You, Christian, are not assured salvation regardless of how you live. The Bible just does not do that for you. You are assured salvation because of the fruit of your life. Because that indicates that you have the Holy Spirit, that you've been united to Christ by faith. So it's not in spite of how you live, it's in light of how you live. That's the indication that you are a Christian. Again, this is not to say a Christian doesn't fall into temptation sometimes, or fall into sin sometimes, but it is to say that the Holy Spirit is working in a Christian and he will have that Christian, and you will be clean. So, hear me when I say, do not be deceived into a way of viewing grace as it is merely something that, that kind of covers over your sin. Grace, as I've said, ad infinitum, does something with you. It, it, it brings salvation, Titus 2, but it also trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live upright, self-controlled, and godly lives in this present age. Now, if grace is doing that in you through the Holy Spirit, then to not live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age is to oppose the Holy Spirit. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. So we good there? Do, do we understand that? This is, do not live according to the flesh. Don't have a cordial relationship with sin in your life. God does not promise you salvation in spite of opposing the Holy Spirit. It's in light of cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Now, 
So we need to live according to the, the, the life that God has given us. That, that's the, that's the, the core of this message. You need to live according to the life that God has given you in opposition to the death that God has freed you from. And so the Apostle Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The proof that you're a Christian is, like I said, the battle against sin. That's the proof. That that is putting to death the deeds of the body. Our friend Paul Washer wrote, A proof of conversion is not the absence of warfare against the flesh, but on the contrary, one of the great evidences that we have been truly been born again is that our friendship with the flesh has been denounced. And we have declared war against it without any intention of truce. That's an indication that you are a child of God. So, put sin to death through the Holy Spirit. Put the flesh, that inclinations, the uprisings of temptation, kill that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, two observations here. Number one. That your salvation does meaningfully require your obedience is clear in Scripture. It is very clear that your participation in obedience and faithfulness is required for the Christian life. That should not shock Bible readers. So, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verse 15, Paul talks about being glorified with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Hebrews, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Apostle Paul says, I, um, in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and be made like him, that by every mean possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Then he says, brothers, I don't think that I've already attained this, or, or, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. So, the Christian life does not mean passivity, some kind of cool passivity, cordial relationship with sin, you know, just seeing how things turn out, you know, I'm, I'm good with the man upstairs. No, it is a, a forward-leaning pursuit of God, opposition to the flesh, living as a sacrifice for the Lord. That's what Christianity is about. Second observation is that you're not doing this in your own power. You're doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's the Spirit himself in you that's the agent for change. So you're not left to your own devices. And it does mean that you have the opportunity to do this. You can. You are not, you are not victim to the flesh anymore. You're not a slave to obey it. You can 
And you must strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet if you feel like you constantly fall into sin. Now, if you, if you, are, if you have not put saving faith in Christ, trusted him as your Lord and Savior, committed to a life of discipleship and obedience and slavery to him, therefore you do not have the Holy Spirit in your life. And therefore, you are a victim to sin. And that's why, even though you might think you're a Christian, you constantly fall in to the temptations of the flesh. The good news for you is you're probably not a Christian, if that's your situation. And Christianity is much more victorious than that. Much more victorious than that. So, through the scripture, I'm offering you life today. Christ is offering you life. So repent and believe the gospel, and the life of the Son will be implanted into you. And he will work in you, and he will free you from the things that you have been enslaved to and ensnared by for a long time. So... The Christian life demands a continuing yes to the work of Christ in you. That's what I'm saying. The Christian life demands your constant agreement to the work of Christ in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, put sin to death by the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? In our spiritual growth campaign, I gave you five reasons for this. I just want to bring two of those out today. How can you put sin to death through the Holy Spirit? I'll give you two ways. Number one, cut off the lines of supply to sin in your life. So take away what gives strength to sin its strength and power in your life. N.T. Wright in his commentary on Colossians, says, to put to death, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's ability to resist the last stage of temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. Every Christian has the responsibility to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. So I want you to think of situations, circumstances, people in your life that are lifelines to sin and death and slavery. Take 10 seconds. What are those situations, people, circumstances, and opportunity that bring you closer to sin? What you need to do with that is cut off that lifeline. As Jesus said, it's better to cut off your hand and go into hell than or going to heaven, rather. <laughs> it's better to cut your hand off and go in to be with the Lord in heaven than to go with two hands into hell. Right? So 
This is, this is straight from the mouth of Jesus. What is the thing that causes you to sin? Cut it off from your life. That's number one. Number two, and this is, this is something you can do even now. This is something you can do every minute of the day. And this is a spiritual discipline that will change you into a different kind of person. Number two, resist sin before it achieves expression through you. So what do you do with sinful uprisings in your life? What do you do with those? Now, you can't avoid temptation, necessarily. You can't avoid the uprising of temptation all the time. But the question is, what do you do with that temptation? That's what matters. And so, the key to victory is noticing when sin is tempting you, when it's trying to achieve that incarnation in you, and to kill it on the spot, to resist it on the spot. So there's the sins of the tongue. You can be angry, but before that anger comes out in hateful speech, you can kill that. It, it, it takes one spark to start a wildfire. And so what you need to do is catch angry thoughts before they breed into hostility and wrath. That's how you can kill sin. Catch it before it comes out into expression in your life. Before your hands, your feet, your body does something with it, kill it. Resist it. So before it comes out, put it to death. Those are the two ways that you can put sin to death through the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is this. Some people, when they hear a message like this get a little nervous, even good Christians, and wonder where their assurance is, where, the, where does their assurance lie? And the Apostle Paul touches on that subject in verse 14. How do you know if you're a Christian? How can you have assurance that you're a child of God? Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's your assurance. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of God. What is the overall power guiding force in your life? If it's the Spirit of God, then you are his child. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's how you know you've come to know the Lord, if you're obedient to him. So the question the question is this, have you seen the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you seen a change in your life? Have you seen old sins put to death? Have you seen progress spiritually? Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's your confidence. So are you thankful for the cross? Do you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit advancing in your life? Do you hold fast to the promise of the gospel? Do you doubt the promises and yet still cling to Christ in faith and hope and trust? That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life who will not let you go. So the relationship the scripture wants you to have with the Lord is one of sonship and daughterhood. 
not one of fear that I might do the wrong thing and slip into damnation. It's sonship and daughterhood, and it's been given the it's living according to the life that you've been given. So the Apostle Paul goes on and says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you afraid that you might that you might lose your salvation. You're not, you're not in a position of anxiously pacifying God with your works. Rather, the Apostle Paul writes, you have, been, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So you were, God is a father to you, and you are dearly loved. And you are a son or a daughter. When Jesus told his disciples to pray, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus taught his disciples to address God and think of God as a heavenly father who loves them and cares for them. So, in the gospel, the offer in the gospel is, it's more than just forgiven, right? It's more than just you're forgiven. It's you've been reconciled to God as a son or a daughter, and you belong to him, and he has united you to his own son and given you the spirit of adoption by whom you cry, Abba, Father. And because you are sons, Galatians 4, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So I want you to lean into that relationship. Think for a minute, how do you pray? When you pray, are you approaching God in, in, in a posture of, of some kind of pious sainthood? Approach God as a child. It is a, it is a transformative posture for the Christian life. As a child who is beloved by the Father. And honestly bear your heart to him with reverence and respect. But God is a father who cares dearly about you. And you know what? If anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So it is you pray and you approach God within the forgiveness that Christ offers, within the sonhood that he offers, or the daughterhood that he offers. So when you approach God, in Christ and through him, you're coming to him through Christ's sonship. All right, so reimagine your relationship with the Lord, not as a slave in fear, but as a child crying, Father, Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment. Now, Paul goes on in verse 16 and says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That word bear witness means to provide confirming evidence by means of a testimony. So God is providing evidence through the Holy Spirit that you are his children. So a few questions. Do you live at peace with your sin, or do you feel convicted about sin, even as you do it? Do you love God, knowing that he is holy and righteous and good? Do you want to
you go to heaven and be with God? And do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, what I just covered was sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Holy Spirit has come into the world, according to Jesus, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if you have those convictions, a love for God, knowing that he is holy and righteous, of an aversion to sin in your life, and of a wanting to hear, well done, good and faithful, that's the Holy Spirit in you. If you could care less about these things, then fear. Be, be, be very fearful, because it is, a, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But it is a glorious thing to fall into the hands of a Heavenly Father. So, in verse 18, then, Paul concludes this thought, bringing together the stern warning of verse 13 with the sonhood and the daughterhood that he offers in Christ. And he says, if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You've been united to Christ so that his privileges become your privileges. And we sang today, why should I gain from his reward? God has made you a child through Christ, and has allowed you to gain from Christ's reward. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That sounds almost blasphemous, that you will be glorified, Christian. But there it is. You will be glorified with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given you a lavish, ridiculous, absurd gift. Provided you suffer with him. Alright, so when you're united with Christ, you, you are united with the whole Christ. Alright? That's the Christ who suffered on earth. That's the Christ who opposed evil powers. That opposed the sin, the flesh, and the devil that humbled himself, that died, and that rose again, and that ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's the whole Christ. So if you're united to Christ, you will go down the path of sonship and daughterhood through and with Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So live according to the life that's been given to you. God has set you before you life and death and is telling you to choose life. Don't go back. Do not go back to the flesh today. You know, when, um, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, Egypt, it says that uh, Israel, in their hearts, they returned to Egypt. They returned back to slavery in their hearts. Don't do that. You have far too much to live for. Your promises in Christ are far too great, far too glorious to go back to a yoke of slavery. Find rest in Christ, whose yoke is light, and his burden is easy to care for, uh, easy to carry. Find rest for your souls in Christ. Find sonship in a father 
will not let you go. God sets before you life and death and is telling you to live in agreement with that life. Do not go back to Egypt. You've got far too much to live for. And we will do this until he comes and takes us uh, to himself in glory. Let's close in a word of prayer.